And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Sixers no longer have Al Horford, Josh Richardson, the rights to Vasily Michik, the 34th pick in Wednesday's draft, the 36th pick, and a 2025 first-round pick. Coming back in are Danny Green, Terrence Ferguson, Seth Curry, along with Tyrese Maxey, a guard out of Kentucky, Isaiah Joe, a wing out of Arkansas, and Paul Reed, a forward from DePaul. Rich and I break down all the Sixers draft night moves in this podcast. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. You know, real quick, because we've got a lot to talk about, and we always forget to do this. Head on over to theathletic.com slash Sixers Beat. You can get 40% off a yearly subscription. Sign up. You can get our written content. We have written one or two articles here in the last week. I think you'll enjoy some of it, find it useful. Also, uh, if you can, leave us a five-star rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, but really anywhere you listen to podcasts. Even if you don't, just go leave five-star ratings. We appreciate it. Gets us out to more Sixers fans. Um, I don't know what's really in it for you, but we appreciate it. And with that out of the way, how you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. It feels like it feels a little hinkyish right now, you know. Like I feel yeah. like the wheeling and the dealing. The, I mean, to be fair, like the uh, the fit or around the stars that wasn't really a a hinky staple yet because the stars either weren't on the team or, or well, the they stars weren't even were still playing. in high school. Yeah, yeah, they weren't even playing. But it was a uh, it was an eventful draft night, and uh, it certainly. I mean, I, I think we both were impressed by what the Sixers did, but more than anything, it was just interesting. Which yeah. is uh, which is a good change of pace, considering last year was not very interesting. All right, so I guess a real quick rundown. Out go the Al Horford and Josh Richardson, two of the, really the two big acquisitions in terms of new acquisitions that were made over the summer. The other major signing being Tobias Harris, who was already on contract. But both of the two major additions last summer, gone. Al Horford going to OKC in a deal that hasn't yet officially been finalized, but it's just a, a timing thing. I thought I saw that that's not going to get finalized for too, a little until bit, yeah. like maybe like a week into training camp, even. Um, yeah, which that's something Super to keep awful. in mind. Yep, uh, but basically it's 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 because of aggregated salaries and what OKC can do and all kinds of complicated shit. But um, don't worry about it. It's just it, it's minutia at this point. And then you had Josh Richardson going to Dallas. You also had the thirty fourth pick going to OKC, and then the 36th pick going to Dallas. A 2025 future first-round pick, which which Rich broke the news on, which is top six protected in 2025. That also goes to OKC because OKC does not have enough first-round draft picks yet. Uh, if that first-round pick falls inside of the top six in 2025, it's top four protected in 2026. And then if it doesn't convey either of those two years, it becomes a pair of second-round picks. Um, which, of course, if it doesn't convey, then convey, then the Sixers are in deep shit because that means they finished with one of the worst records in the league two years in a row. 
And then they also traded the draft rights to Vasily Michik, which somebody on, on Reddit uh, accused me of mispronouncing his name frequently. I mispronounce a lot of names, but I don't think I completely butchered that one, or at least haven't recently. So all of those are gone. Hey, and also Reddit, by the way, we wrote about him more than anybody. Yeah, uh, seriously. Relax. Get off our we, back. Yeah. we are fans of, of Vasa, all, the, of all right? The I even know his nickname. About, right. Of all the people talking about Michik, like we have actually, we've probably watched him the most. So back the fuck off. Anyway. We don't mean it. I love you, Reddit. Don't we don't need to start that war. Incoming is you know Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson from OKC, and then Seth Curry from Dallas, and then the Sixers use their three remaining draft picks: Tyrese Maxey out of Kentucky with the twenty-first pick, Isaiah Joe uh, with the 49th pick, and Paul Reed out of DePaul with the fifty-eighth pick. So, you know, I think if you would look at all of the moves, like if you would have, if you would have listened to this podcast. A couple weeks ago, which you should have been, but if you weren't, you I think you would have heard us say Al Horford is the one who's definitely going to go. Like it just feels like for everybody's sanity, for fit, for financial reasons, he's going to go. And then if you the second most likely person probably would have been Josh Richardson, not necessarily because Josh Richardson had to go. All those reasons why he you would move him from his bad fit to the fact that he is going to be paid a lot more money in a year's time. You want to get value for him now but also because he was one of the few players on the Sixers who actually had positive trade value, who you were willing to trade. So those were the two most likely. So it wasn't stunning in that regard. But it was a little, a couple things were surprising. First of all, how little it cost to get out of Al Horford's contract. That was the most surprising thing to me of the night by far. But also just how quickly it all happened. Like it went from like, I, I mean, I was out getting pizza two and a half hours before the draft. I figured I had a small window there where like I could actually like, leave my house because who makes a trade two hours before the draft? Just wait until it starts. The Sixers do. Yeah. Sixers do. Daryl Morey does. Um, But between that period and when Josh Richardson was gone, it Sixers were remade in seemingly an instant. And it was a, like you said, I remember Sam Hinkie's first draft back in 2013, the drew holiday trade, getting Nerlens and MCW. But really the story of that night, they, they made like six different trades in the second round. I remember Sam Hinkie very specifically going like, the day after or later that night, I think it was probably like 1 a.m. being like, I don't actually know what we have. I made so many trades. I've confused myself. And I don't think it was a bit like, I think he was actually a little bit confused and it was sort of like a whirlwind of activity. And on the one hand, it was a lot of moves, a lot of minutia that may or may not matter, but some stuff that really mattered a lot. And today or yesterday. Yeah. Uh, it felt like a lot of repositioning and the Sixers repositioned themselves. Well, and they selected the player in Maxi, who could end up being really important. And it, it just felt like a whirlwind of activity, like you said, sort of drawing back to uh, the Hinkster and his time here. <laughs> you know what? And I feel good about, we had a prediction, like a stay or go prediction article a few weeks ago. Oh and God, I, I forgot about that. And I will say, we're off to a good start because we said Al Horford and Josh Richardson would be gone. So, you know, don't... Uh, don't hold it against us if uh, if Glenn Robinson isn't brought back with a portion of the mid-level <laughs> exception. But with some of the bigger moves, I, I do think the the feel that we had was was pretty good. Um, you know, you just talked for a while, but I, I want you to talk a little bit more because you're better at explaining this than I am. I was really hoping I could just get all my talking out in five minutes and I could go to sleep because, quite frankly, I'm, I'm a little low on that. Well, no, you're going you're gonna to you're gonna have to drink some coffee and uh, buck up for a second here because— I want you to uh, to describe the financial aspect of this because to me, like the Sixers now, I, I like you know their picks seem like they're pretty good, but 
who knows, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who's going to say on draft night, man, they killed those picks. Like, you know, I've watched, uh, I haven't really watched Paul Reed as much, but as far as Maxie and Joe, I, I, I get the theory of both of them. They, they seem like pretty good swings, particularly Maxie, who's somebody who we talked about maybe even trading up a few spots yeah. for. So no, if you go, if you go back to our podcast, we were running under the assumption he wasn't going to be available at 21. So we didn't talk about him too much, but we did mention if we were going to support trading up for somebody, he was probably the prime target. So yeah, so ni- nice move there, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Obviously, you know, he's a pick in the twenties for, for a reason though. Um, but you know, and then you have Seth Curry and, and Danny Green who they just fit better. Like, I don't think the Sixers upgraded in talent last night, but no. last year the fit was so unbelievably poor that to get Seth Curry and, and Danny Green, I mean, Seth Curry is arguably one of the best shooters in the, in the league. Like, obviously he does not have, the J.J. Redick running Off a million ball, miles an yeah. hour gravity, even the Landry Shamit. Maybe maybe he does have a little more than than you think, but, you know, in it's Dallas, he was more of a— Off the catch, off the dribble, yep. More of a spot up. He does run some pick and roll, though, too, which is nice. I, I would expect him to roughly fit into the Redick role as somebody— who uh, you know tether his minutes next to Embiid? I'm getting a little too far into the roster. Oh, we don't. Yeah, we don't need to go through rotation breakdown yeah. yet. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. Okay, so but that that was an important move, and I, I like the Sixers roster more than I did 24 hours ago, just because it seems to make sense. But the big takeaway here was the financial aspect of this, and you know before you go and say, oh man, why do I really care about the the money Josh Harris was was spending? There is a difference to me between being in the luxury tax for somebody like, I don't know, like James Harden in Oklahoma City. Sorry for bringing up the... Uh, <laughs> I hope Daryl's not listening to this one. He might get some uh, PTSD here. Yeah, the name that's been on everybody's mind for the last, I don't know, 48 hours, whatever. Well, not only that, but the fact that he had to try to avoid the luxury tax while having one of the five best players in the yep. in the sport. Yeah, And that's another good one, you know, in, in Houston for Tita not letting Maury really even dip into the luxury tax at all. Like, that's being in the luxury tax for a good reason. The Sixers, there is no good reason they were that expensive. And, you know, you're not winning anything with Al Horford and Joe Embiid playing together. So uh, I'm going to let you break down kind of like what this means. But, you know, I, I just just looking at it in general, not being like obscenely expensive this year is a big deal in terms of, you know, the mid-level exception. But the money they save in future years is just huge. Yeah. Now you say not being obscenely expensive this year, there's still, you know, what about seven and a half million dollars over the luxury tax. So imagine if you're Houston and you have to be under the luxury tax while trying to field a championship caliber team. It's uh, I mean, as our, our, our colleague, Danny Relu says, ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in professional sports. And uh, that would be an example of that. By the way, like when we cover the draft, Sometimes I, I don't see all of the moves that happen. Like like last night, I thought uh, R.J. Hampton was still on the board when the Sixers were picking, and he, he was picked. You know, sometimes you don't see all those picks go by as you're furiously writing a, a Danny Green trade com. What did Houston do? Like, they, they, they just sold picks, and Fertitta, like, leaked that they the were amount. going to use the mid-level exception or yeah. whatever. Whew, it seems like a bad situation there right now. Congratulations, you're using the mid-level exception. Um, Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. What was your question? Explain the, the actual financial. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they traded, um, you know, Horford and Richardson, who combined for, what, about $38 million-ish dollars yep. for Danny Green, Seth Curry, and Terrence Ferguson. And Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson are two expiring contracts, Total about $20 million-ish, a little under, $19 million and change. And then Seth Curry has three years and a little over $24 million left. So you essentially traded $69 million in guaranteed money. And to get Horford down to three years, $69 million, you had to have $12 million or $14.5 million in dead money. It means you had to waive him in the final year of his contract. So you're paying $14.5 million for nothing. And by nothing, I don't mean like sarcastically nothing like what he gave you at times last year. I mean literally not on your roster. So that would not even be a good outcome. Uh, otherwise, it would have been, you know, three years, about $81 million left on the Horford contract. So he traded that for three years, $24.5 million. Good. Um, but the big thing in, in, in just that part of this, you know, Horford's three-year contract was a net negative value contract. For Seth Curry, his three-year contract is a positive trade value contract. So you want your positive trade value guys locked under contract for as long as you can and your negative trade value guys to come up as quickly as it can. So I think it's it's important just to realize they got a positive trade asset out of all of this maneuvering that they can use, even if he's not maybe a long-term piece. And I think he could be because the skill set fits very well. But even if not, you have positive trade value. And I think that's going to be an overriding theme in Daryl Morey's wheelings and dealings. And quite frankly, I think when we look at this and back up and we stop talking about luxury tax and apron and mid-level and sign-in trades, which I'll do in a second, but when you back up, the Sixers now have a lot more contracts that they can match salary with. Not now, because you can't aggregate Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson right now in a trade, but when you get into, what, I I mean, it's it's like early uh, December now because everything's ramped up because it's not a normal season, but you have a you know, $15.3 million Danny Green contract or an $8.6 million trade exception or, you know, Mike Scott and Seth Curry. Like you've just got more pieces that you can match in a trade that you didn't have before. If you go back to where the Sixers were financially before, you had Tobias Harris and Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and, and, and all of those guys at the top at $27 million plus. And then you had like Mike Scott, at $5 million and Zaire Smith at $3 million. Remember, like, trying to match salary last summer? It was like, oh, my God, I don't know how we can even do this. You can't match salary. They don't have any middle ground salaries. It was just, now, Jay, it was just Jay Rich who was middle ground. And, yeah, you and know, he was, last season, he was a key part of the team. You know, he was right. somebody who wasn't going to be moved. Right. You didn't acquire him to move him. You acquired him because you thought he was going to fit well. So th- that's important. And I think, you know, I, I when I was writing my article at, fucking like 3 a.m. this morning because I'm the slowest writer and I have to think about everything and it just doesn't process, especially late at night. But I went back to that quote with Daryl when he said, like, the goal isn't really to build the perfect team on game one because that's a lot of times the opportunity just isn't there to do that. 
But you want to be able to first evaluate your team and then pounce when the opportunity is there. I think they're in a much better position to pounce now than they were beforehand with those massive contracts. So I think that's that's number one. But overall, when you take all that back, they shaved, I don't even know, they shaved like... Nine million or so? Yeah, it's, it's nine, ten million, somewhere in that range. Eight, eight to ten million, we'll call it, off of this year's salary, which gets them down to about $139, $140 million in salary. Still over the luxury tax. Still not a cap team. Don't don't think about cap space. But it gets them basically about a million dollars within the apron. It might be a, might be two million, might be two point five million. It sort of depends on what they do with Isaiah Joe and Paul Reed and their contract situations. So it it, it could be in a range there. And so I, I guess one thing backing up with what the apron means. Basically, if the if you do two things, you get hard capped at the apron. Four things really, but two things that really apply to the Sixers. First of all, if you acquire a player back in a sign and trade. So let's say, I don't know, maybe a, a shooting guard out in Sacramento, maybe maybe a Bogdanovich as a hypothetical, wants to come to Philly. Uh, don't win me this. I'm not saying he does, but it's a hypothetical. And the Sixers were like, great, we think you're worth that contract. Let's work out a deal, a sign and trade deal. If they acquire him in a sign and trade, like um, Sacramento signs him and trades him to the Sixers, they become hard capped at this 139 or no, 130. Ah, where's my freaking 138.928 million dollar apron threshold? So the fact that they are now closer to it, like a million, a little one million to 2.5 million closer, it means that they can, you know, ba- realistically structure a trade where they are taking back less money than they're sending out, get below that apron, and they can they can function after that that sign and trade. So they have that going for them. And now, look, they got an $8.6 million trade exception. I saw some people say, well, well, can't they just use that trade exception to cover the rest of it? No, the trade exception allows you to bring back more salary than you send out, which is the opposite of what they can do. They have to be under that apron after a sign-and-trade if they do execute it. But it gives them the flexibility where they can pursue that. Now, the mid-level, if you use the full mid-level, not the the, the taxpayer mid-level, but the full standard mid-level of like nine-point-something million dollars which can be up to four years in length, then you become hard capped at this $138 million apron threshold. Otherwise, you get the $5.7 million taxpayer mid-level, which can only be for three years. Now, the key here is if, you know, it's not just that if they get under the apron, they get the full mid-level. No, they have to be under the apron after they use the mid-level. So they would still have to clear off realistically $10 plus million in cap space to be able to use that full mid-level but again, you can start wheeling and dealing with, you know, let's say you eventually move a Danny Green and a, and a Mike Scott, or you find some taker for that, maybe some team who has cap space or a trade exception. It's unlikely, but it's a it's it's a lot closer now when you have to clear, you know, basically $10 million to use that mid-level rather than before when they, they realistically had to clear $20 million. And and even so if they, they even if they don't clear all that money, it just seems more palatable for them to use the full not, 100%. the full tax pyramid level, sorry. 100%. Yeah, so basically they gain some flexibility. They gain some options. Options they may not use because, again, if they do either of those two moves, they become hard-capped at the apron. They might not want to be hard-capped at the apron. They might want to go into the trade deadline, have all of these pieces they can trade, have this trade exception they can use, and have the flexibility where they can take back a larger salary than they're sending out. So they may not want to. But again, it's all about and a phrase that Daryl Morey used twice that we hadn't heard used since Sam Hinkie. It's all about optionality. They have more options to them because they shed that contract. And then in the future, you start going. I mean, there's the the savings in the in future cap years is. I mean, it's just astronomical. 
Like you could see them be like, especially once Danny Green, his contract expires, Terrence Ferguson, his contract expires. Not that Ferguson's huge, but it, I mean, it's $4 million. Um, they could legitimately be under the apron by a significant amount, which again, they're not going to be a salary cap team. They're not going to have cap space, but they could use that full mid-level and not worry about hitting that hard cap with the apron. Even if they don't use it this year, it could set them up to do so in future years. Like that's where those contracts of Al Horford, or that's where those contracts of quite frankly, Josh Richardson, if they would have brought him back in a, 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 a signing, if they would have brought him back next summer, that's where those could have become prohibitive. Um, and they got out from under those. They got value for Josh Richardson while they still had him under team control. They got a contract back for Josh Richardson, who has now cost control for three years, which, again, I think is important because now you know I don't have to worry about bringing Josh Richardson back. I don't have to worry about whether he's going to get 12 million or 14 or 16 million per year. I know Seth Curry is making eight. Now I can go out there and use that that mid-level um, because I have that certainty. And I think that is a uh, that is a win. Like you said, I wouldn't look at either Seth Curry or Danny Green as better talents than either Josh Richardson or Al Horford. I think they're significantly lesser talents than both the players the Sixers gave up. But the salary cap impact is huge, and the fit is huge. And I mean, like, legitimately huge. Like, you went from maybe the worst fit around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons you could have in those two to one of the best. Certainly in Seth Curry's case, I think that fit there is going to be pretty much perfect with what the Sixers need out of their two stars. You'll have to cover them up defensively, but the offensive fit is going to be almost perfect. So yeah, I think I think overall, lesser talent, better fit, and a hell of a lot more financial flexibility. And yeah. I don't know if any of that actually made any sense. I realized just there I was talking for like 10 minutes straight, but I'm on two hours of sleep. And no, that's, that's, that's good, man. Coffee. You're like, you're like Daryl Morey. You're just riffing, baby, <laughs> yeah. as he said last night. The uh, Yeah, the fit is pretty sound with both of those guys. The one thing I will say is neither player, I would say, especially Danny Green, who does not know how to dribble. Um, no, I, think, not, I think you might be able to dribble better than him. Are not providing like the end of game shot creator role. Even, no, even Seth sure. Curry, yep. if he can do a little bit off the bounce, it's not really his thing. You're not a, uh, you're not running, you know, Jimmy Butler style offense at the end of games through Seth Curry. But uh, I, I guess my big takeaway with that is that, uh, but you know what? To be fair, like Josh Richardson probably is more talented than Seth Curry, but I don't want to run late game plays through Josh Richardson either. Oh, no, 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 no. Not and he doesn't provide you any shooting. So nope. I, you know, that's a little bit of my hot take. And I, I hope that came across in my writing and my podcasting over the past few months. I love Josh Richardson, like great guy, tough as hell, plays hard defensively. I think Dallas is a good fit for him. They need, wing defense much much more than the Sixers do at this point. Uh, He was a very poor fit with Embiid and Simmons. He just was not a quick decision maker. And, you know, I, I, you know, as much as I say that's a bad fit with the Sixers, it's not a great fit with like the modern NBA. I do think he's on the right team now with Luka Doncic at the controls at, at all times and great spacing. So, so hopefully he does well there, but I, I was not like, thrilled with the idea of extending him for a long time no. if you were going to keep Ben Simmons and uh, and Joel Embiid. I, I guess the other thing I'd ask you, are you uh, how surprised are you that they were able to get off Horford that easily? It, oh, that, that, it, that, it seems like, to me, it was way less than I thought. Yeah, like there were two real legitimate surprises tonight. Like the Josh Richardson for Seth Curry, I think, you know, going back to what you said, I I think both teams did win that trade. And I saw one outlet 
I forget who it was, and I'm, I'm, I promise I'm not doing this deliberately, but I saw one give Dallas an A and the Sixers a B. And usually you think, well, if one team got an A, that means they got the clearly better player. How can you give the other team a B? Like, for one to win that much, the other person had to lose. No. But I think fit and need is so important with this trade that I really do think both teams won. Um, it is a, you know, and like I said, fit not only on the court, which is astronomical, especially considering how poor Josh's was and how good Seth's is. And by the way, I, I want to... I Pat ourselves on the back. I don't think either you or I ever called him Jason Richardson, <laughs> but now we have to worry about calling him Seth Curry every time. And I'm worried I don't, about that. I don't mess up like that. I don't no, like Seth and Steph are just too close that I'm going to mess up. I must speak all the time, but these players, I don't know. Maybe it's a sign that I'm not, you know, the cranky old sports writer at this time who, who misspeaks. I, I never even came close to calling him Jason Richardson. <laughs> well, it happened a lot. If I mean, we don't do national TV, but if we did, we'd be one of the few who didn't mess that up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the Sixers are, are positioned pretty well. I think the way I, I, I sort of ended it in my column this morning, uh, which the athletic.com slash Sixers beat, you can sign up, but uh, the moves that the Sixers made on Wednesday night, like, I don't think that positions them as like Eastern conference favorites. Like, I don't think we're talking about that. But what I do think is three things. You know, I think they got a a significantly better fit around their two stars, which is important. And we saw that play out in 2017-18 when they played above their heads. And we saw that play out last year in the the inverse when they played well below their talent level. I think that's important. I think the financial flexibility they gained from everything, from tradable contracts to aprons to um, mid-levels to sign-and-trades, is really, really important. And I think it could be important here in the coming days. And I think it certainly will be important in the coming years. And I think it was important that they added a real legitimate young talent. And I do think Maxi, look, he's got his question marks and you never know what the draft. And that's part of what makes it so interesting, but he has his intrigue too. And for him to, you know, fall to 21, I think there's a real chance they ended up overshooting his, their draft slot with that selection. And I think they did that with a position and a skill set of need. So when I go back, like none of these moves are probably like an A plus move. Although Horford's pretty close because you gave up so little to get off of that contract. But if you hit three B's in a row, you're in a significantly better position. And maybe that doesn't mean that the moves made today or yesterday are the ones who get you to that NBA Eastern Conference favorite to that NBA Finals. But they position yourself well for when those moves do become available. And I think that's essentially what the Sixers did last night. Definitely. So. Looking at the uh, the athletics grades from Zach Harper on uh, on the Richardson Curry swap, I believe he gave uh, an A and an A minus to both teams, and I I agree with that. You know, Dallas was able to get that extra second round pick for the Sixers, who you know I, I think they were paying more because they were more desperate for the shooting. A that that's my one nibble. If if I could take one thing back, it would be keep one of those two second round picks, trade up, get a Desmond Bain type. Um, that would have been. The one thing I would have liked. But I'm sure Daryl also wanted that contract pretty badly. So, you know, is is that the, did you win that trade like outright? Probably not. But again, it does make sense. Totally agree with you about the fit. It really felt like Daryl Morey was saying to Simmons and Embiid, hey, this is on you because I'm going to bring the pieces around you. We're not going to up the talent level. We're not going to uh, to get you the third star. But we're going to get back to 27-18 when there were a lot of shooters around you and you two 
were in the middle of it all orchestrating everything, and it's it's on you to make it work. And I, I did think it was notable in his press conference in the wee hours of the morning, Daryl Morey talked about we have two superstars. We uh, It seemed like he really was uh, was hamming it up with the Ben and Joel yeah. idea, which could be his way of uh, maybe diff- diffusing the, uh, the James Harden talk over the past couple of days. I, I oh. don't know. But it, it sure seems like they are building – a uh, a roster that fits around those two. I, and look, I'm not saying, you know, completely forget about James Harden. We talked about Fertitta, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago. Houston is a disaster. They are yep. They are not getting – that situation's not getting any better. I, You know, they, they might keep them this year, but the idea that they have, like, all the leverage in the world considering, uh, you know, Harden has two years left on his contract and then he's probably gone. They're in a they're in an interesting spot, uh, but but it sure seems like this was Maury at his opening press conference a few weeks ago. He talked about you know I want to see what these guys look like together. You know we're gonna try and make it work with them. It, it, it seems like he was building that roster. Now if they trade for James Harden all of a sudden in a, in a couple of days, then hey, then I was wrong. But uh, it, it sure seems like a better fit in that regard. And uh, my my other thing, just because you were talking about the Horford, uh, the price. I thought they were going to have to give up two first round picks for Al Horford, or like a first round pick and a player or something. So, like, or yeah, like a first round pick and Thibel, you know, something like that, or Milton. And you know, that pick is a it's it's a good one. Like we we are veterans of the process. The you know a kind of lightly protected first round pick, far off into the future when who the hell knows what's going on in twenty twenty five, what the Sixers look like. You know, our Embiid and Simmons even still here. All that stuff is is good and well, but he protected against like the absolute worst case scenario, which is important, right? Like a a top five pick in that first year, and it just seemed like I mean, God, the the financial burden of moving Horford, like you said, you know, twenty eight million this year, twenty eight million next year, twelve million the next year, and you got to cut him to do that. It just seems like it was well worth it. And not only that, like Green is not a uh, a star player. He is somebody who I would say analytics probably values more than than the league has. He's kind of been a throw-in in in a few trades. He's won a he's won championships over the last two years, by the way. He hasn't been the best player on those teams. But uh no, I just go for it. Danny Green two in a row. Yeah, and just All just in. try and ride the wave. See if see yeah. if he makes it 3. But, uh, you know, he certainly is a serviceable player. It's not like you yeah. got a complete stiff back for Al Horford, which I thought maybe you would have to do. Like, maybe you would get a much, get much worse country. player yep. Who, yep. who was expiring. And then you'd also have to attach the picks to it. So, like, as far as shedding Horford, there was always going to be a degree of the Sixers needing to take their medicine there. Like, that wasn't yep. going to feel good. There was certainly going to be some level of pain but I thought Maury this did a pretty like good job minimizing where you it. take it and you're like, oh, that's actually pretty sweet. That doesn't taste too bad. Yeah. yeah. So that's a uh, that's a good deal. And, uh, you know, I would as- assume that, that Danny Green is going to play a big part in the Sixers rotation, you know, starting next year, whenever the hell he gets here. And uh, and then you got Terrence Ferguson, too, who, you know, he played a lot. He didn't play very well. No. 
Um, he's certainly a, a very good athlete who he might of any player who played 20 minutes per game. He might have been the least effective offensive player in the league. He's got to make the least offense uh, effective wing. He's got to make shots. That, that That's his big deal. You know, it's funny. His best game of last season by a mile was against the Sixers in Oklahoma city. And I, that, that was the game where I, I did a story on Brett Brown because I was sitting right behind the bench. Basically it, Oklahoma city gives you those great media seats. And I guess for a while, just because I didn't watch Oklahoma City a lot earlier in the year, I was like, oh, man, Terrence Ferguson's pretty good. He shot seven of nine against the Sixers, played good. You look up and you're shooting 24% from three. Yeah, he uh, he was not very effective. But again, that's a that's a decent flyer for the Sixers to take. And hey, if he sucks, then uh, then wave goodbye next year. Yeah, all right. So I, you, I guess that was your turn to sort of go on a, a monologue. So I'm going to sort of like weigh in on quickly on a couple of those things there. You know, in terms of is James Harden still on the radar? Like, here's two things I think I would say. First of all, shooting tends to it tends to complement pretty much everyone. It complements James Harden. It complements uh, Joel Embiid. It complements Ben Simmons. So I don't think any of the moves they made were like, oh, we're you know, this is a surefire indication that they're buying into these two as the centerpieces for the next five years. It's just they need shooting regardless, and it, it does complement Ben as well. The other thing I think I would say, clearly, I think Daryl Morey is looking to downplay the speculation. And I mean, I'm sure, look, like you'll hear people phrase like, oh, they're giving up on Ben Simmons too soon if they do to James Harden trains. Like that's not giving up on, like that's the wrong way to phrase it. The phrase, way to phrase it is they're going after an MVP caliber player. You know, but I don't think, like I think Daryl Morey likes Ben Simmons. I think he probably views them as a as a, a, a duo that he... uh wants to see whether or not they can figure it out and, and lead them to a championship. But it doesn't help, no matter what his overall end goal is, and I don't I don't know what it is, it doesn't help him to have people think that he wants to move either of these two. It doesn't help the locker room internally. It doesn't help his relationship with the players. It doesn't help his negotiating leverage with the other teams. So, like, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know what Daryl Morey's going to do, and if I can figure that out based off of a press conference, then he wouldn't be that good of a GM. So uh, I guess my point is don't tea leave read too much because he's probably knows what he's doing with this media game. Uh, which again, I, I, isn't me saying that I think he's going to trade Ben Simmons. Is that I don't fucking know. All right. Um, and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on direct TV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on direct TV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. Direct TV has the most MLB games. Visit directtv.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Where was I going after that? Nope. 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 Doesn't matter. Um, what what else did you talk about? <laughs> I'm fried, dude. Terrence Ferguson and Danny Green and kind of like oh. the, the fit. Yeah. And, and like, look, I don't. 
Um, you know, Danny Green's not, he's not the player he was four years ago. Like, I think he's lost a step. The Sixers do have a little bit concerning level of people who can't dribble. And you do sort of wonder what this means short term, at least, for Matisse and whether that changes his role at, at, at all. But I do think, like, Danny Green, he's going to, like, you've got players now, Danny Green, career 40% three-point shooter. Seth Curry, career 44% three-point shooter on real volume. Uh, they have, have players who are going to fill roles. I do agree with you. I don't think any of them are really that end-of-game shot creator. I think they still need one or two players who can create in the half court off the dribble, especially until Tyrese Maxey sort of takes that next step um, as a player that you can rely on as part of your rotation and part of your playoff rotation. And maybe he is that from day one, but that's a little aggressive for a young player. So I think there's still moves to be made, which again goes back to, I don't, I wouldn't say the moves they made last night are going to push them towards Eastern conference favorites, but uh, overall it was a, uh, it was an impressive uh, body of work for sure. Yeah. I, I like right. Maxi too. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I after we talked about maybe trading up for him a few days ago, I did make it a, uh, I did make it a thing where I I went and looked at his uh, at his film a little bit closer. He has excellent touch on floaters and and around the rim. The question Body control too. The question for him is, can he at least prove improve his shooting to the point where? Teams have to really play up on him because he's not, you know, as such a strong dude, he's not like an explosive vertical athlete, a super explosive. I mean, he's not a, a terrible athlete either. Um, no, but he's not like Russell Westbrook. No, where it's like he's getting in the lane even without a jumper. Yeah, not even close. And and it'll be interesting. He is a guy who, you know, I think we talked about this on on the last pod, but he did not shoot particularly well at Kentucky, 29.2% from three. Took a lot of deep threes, as uh, as Sam Vecini astutely pointed out in his monster draft guide. A lot of his threes were deep, he thought, because his release is a little bit lower. from uh, so, so maybe he was trying to compensate and not get it blocked. It's uh, It certainly looks pretty good. He's a decent free throw shooter. Daryl talked about how at the lower levels, and they looked at his form, they thought that the uh, the twenty nine point two percent was kind of an aberration. That that's something that can improve. Uh, something that might have been a small sample at Kentucky. If he can get that to be, you know, up into the mid thirties, you, you, you're looking at a player because he uh, he certainly defends too. So you know, he's not just one of these like one way guys that you hope Simmons and Embiid can kind of make up for on the defensive end. He certainly has two way potential. Yeah, for sure. And look, we when we talk about jumpers in college, like I feel like a lot of times we go, yeah, he shot 40%, but I'm not sure I trust that shot. But it doesn't seem like very often we go, eh, he shot 30%, but I believe in it. Yeah. And I think both are true. Like both of them are born out of low sample size noise where you have to then look at other indicators. And those indicators are free throws, and he shot 83% from the line. Those indicators are form, and I think his form is good it's mostly repeatable it's not perfect it's not without drawbacks like you said it's a it's a low release but i I think he repeats it generally pretty well and i think the rotation and the spin and the touch is pretty good and then you go back to what he did in 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 high school and various international events and aau circuits and he shot the ball pretty well certainly better than he did at kentucky so when you add all that in look is going to come in and shoot 37 percent from three no probably not but I think there's reason to believe he's not going to be a non-shooter 
and that with his work work ethic and his base, that he can grow that over time and maybe become a 35, 36, 37% three-point shooter. I think that's very realistic. And if he does do that, you know, go back to your 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 term from what is probably a decade ago, that's really his swing skill because he does do everything else at least at an acceptable level. Like he's not an elite passer, but he's not a black hole and he'll make some decent reads. He has, um, he's, you know, 6'3 with a 6'6 wingspan that can, you know, play pressure D on the perimeter. He can get into the paint and he has some body control and touch. He needs that jumper to open things up. And if that happens, if you have confidence in it, then I think there's every reason to believe he at least kind of is going to be a, a rotation player in the NBA. And John Calipari screws up every guard that he has. <laughs> they come to the pros and they're, they're unbelievable. So the Sixers are banking on that. John Calipari on draft night is one of the funniest things in he the world. He is one hell of a salesman, isn't he? Sponsored by Papa John's, him in a fleece <laughs> in his office, talking about how good Tyrese Maxey and Manuel Quickly. Manuel Quickly and Nick Richards and whoever the hell else uh, got drafted by Kentucky. Something he does First time every in his year. career, he didn't have a top 20 pick, though. No. Well, NBA U didn't get a top 20 pick. Too bad. I'm sure he'll still uh, his recruiting will still be fine. Don't 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 be too worried about John Calipari. All right, let's go to the other two. Let's wrap this up with the other two players that the Sixers drafted. Um, I guess we'll start off with Isaiah Joe, a sophomore out of Arkansas. I think a young sophomore. Um, averaged where's my notes? Eighteen point seven. Nope, that's per forty. Uh, Sixteen point nine points, four point one rebounds, one point seven assists. Shot. from the field, which sounds awful, but that's because almost, I think, about 75% of his shots came from three-point range, uh, where he shot only 34.2% from three, but he's actually an elite shooter. And I know this is now two players in a row we're telling you, no, ignore the percentages. But really, you should ignore the percentage, especially on this one. Like, Tyrese Maxey is a guy who has shooting potential. Isaiah Joe is a guy who is an elite shooter who was asked to take so many of them on a bad Arkansas offense that he ended up taking extremely high-difficulty shots. No, trust me, when you watch this kid, he's got picture-perfect form. He shot 41% from three. The previous year, he shot 89% from the free-throw line. He shoots off the dribble. He shoots contested. He shoots on the move. He is, I think, going to be a a, a good shooter. The question is, is a gentle breeze going to blow him over? Yeah. I don't know. He took over 10 threes per game Yeah, in his sophomore season at Arkansas. That level of volume, it kind of reminds me of, of Duncan Robinson with like Eric Spolster just telling him, you know, I'm taking you out if you don't get X number of threes up per per game. You know, like we're, we're trying to get you to shoot as many threes as possible. And I wonder if the Sixers will take a similar uh, path with him. If so, it doesn't seem like, it will take a lot of convincing. I So I am a little – I'm not worried about him as just like a shooter. Like he is better, like you said, than that 34% would leave you to believe. Took a ton of contested kind of step-back threes. Took deep threes, hunted for them in transition. Better shooter than what he showed. He, he wasn't like a, a fly-around screens type of guy, though. Um, he wasn't. It was it, mostly off the dribble, mostly off of catch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be fair, like when I say he didn't shoot a ton off the move, it's not that it was completely stationary at all times. Like he would pump fake and maybe take a couple dribbles to escape and and find room. 
maybe he was, you know, running a pick and roll or, or in isolation. Was, you know, he, he wasn't feet cemented into the ground on all 10 of those threes, but he did not do as much of the off screen type stuff. If he does have that in him, then I think this has a chance to be a pretty good pick in terms of just like this could be a role player. As you said, he uh, he's very skinny. That affects him on both ends of the court. Really doesn't do a lot once he gets inside the arc in terms of playmaking, in terms of like finishing at the rim. It's uh, it's certainly a play for finding a, uh, a three-point bomber. And at the 49th pick, you know, even if it doesn't work out, I, I can't really uh, fault the Sixers that much. Yeah, and look, I mean, he had a um, an injury earlier on in the season, a, a knee injury, so he had to play through that. And like you said, all of his shots were, almost all of his shots, like I think something like 65% of his catch-and-shoot shots were contested, which usually that, num- that number is flipped because if you have a contested catch-and-shoot shot, you pass it out. You, you, you kick it to somebody else, try to get a better look. For Arkansas, a contested catch-and-shoot shot was a good shot for him. Uh, he doesn't have a, there's no hesitation in his trigger that leads to some, you know, shots with a high degree of difficulty. So when you look at that 34%, it's not the same as a, you know, an Al Horford shooting 35%. Like a completely different shot profile, completely different degree of difficulty. And quite frankly, completely then different gravity because the other team has to, um, you know, has to guard him at all times. And just having that sort of quick trigger, no hesitation shooter, like after what we've gone through here over the past couple of years, to get another really two of them over the course of of yesterday, it will be nice to watch. I think it will unlock things for Joel Embiid. It really isn't like, and I think it's something we talked about last summer. It's not just the um, percentages with three point. It's, you know, how willing are you to take them contested? How, How quickly will you take them? And how much does the defense worry about leaving you and helping off of you? They're not leaving this guy. They're, they're not leaving this guy. They're not leaving Seth Curry. Uh, and that both of that will... And look, I don't know if Isaiah Joe's going to play right after that. Probably not. Probably like not. <laughs> legitimately six foot five, 175, or 170 pounds. Like, that is rail thin. It comes up not only on a, a scale, but also on when you watch him play. Like, he will get bumped off of his spots. People will drive and give him a shoulder and he'll go flying. He will have trouble driving himself because he will get dislodged. He When he gets in the paint, he really doesn't do much with it. There is a lot to worry about. He needs to get into a strength and conditioning program ASAP. Uh, he should be in the Camden facility tomorrow uh, trying to add some weight. But if he does do that, that shot is pure. That shot is quick. And, um, you know, I do think looking at him, I think he's probably one who can, like a lot of people I look at and I say, I don't like adding a shot on the move is really tough. And even guys who are great standstill shooters, even guys who are really good coming off of a screen, they can struggle with it because the footwork's just completely different. Like it's not the same at all. I think this guy's probably fundamentally sound enough where you can add that over time. And that will be, uh, interesting. You know, JJ Reddick came into the, the, he was, he had a little stuff off of a screen, but he was much more on the ball when he came in the league too. He had to adapt. And I think, I think Joe could be same with Ray Allen. It's a fairly new skill. Yeah. Yeah. And like, would I have preferred maybe somebody like Emmanuel quickly who a has more defensive potential, but B already has that in his arsenal. Sure. Because like I said, this isn't an easy school to learn, but I think of anyone who's going to learn it, I think Joe has a chance. He really has picture perfect form. So the, the idea of him adding, some uh, some stuff off the move is 
It's not completely far-fetched. I, I do think it's important, though, because he does not strike me as somebody who's going to, like, turn into a great dribble-drive guy. So it's it's important. That's the way J.J. and, like, Landry were able to get separation by running like crazy and, and getting separation that way. But, yeah, totally agree with you on the uh, on the idea of, you know, the defense has to guard, guard him. And so, you know, regardless of what he shot, the, the gravity that – you know, players like Embiid and Simmons could potentially work with. That's uh that's important. And by the way, I do not expect this kid to play right away. It would honestly make sense. I don't know what the deal is with the G League this season. He would feel like a perfect G League guy right yep. away. Go uh go put on some weight, maybe ping pong back and forth from the Sixers and the G League. Don't uh maybe so you don't have to go on those uh those long crazy road trips. But you know, when there's like a homestand, maybe uh. Fire twelve threes a night in Delaware. Um, I guess that's enough on him. What do you? Uh, Paul Reed's the last guy. Yep. And I, I cannot say I watched him play all that much. Uh, you know, and I'll even add a little more to that. I've never seen him play, but he is somebody that John Hollinger, who's obviously well, very, very smart and yep. somebody who I read all the time, and it's it's awesome that he gets to work with us. By the way, theathletic.com slash Sixers beat. Um, he has been banging the drum for Paul Reed for months now and, and saying that this is a guy who is the most undervalued player in the draft and the Sixers scoop him up at 58. He is an analytics darling. I think yep. that's partially right. That's because of his great blocks Big stocks guy. Yeah, and yep. steals number. He, uh, he is somebody who, you know, from a scouting perspective, everybody says it's not just the blocks and the steals that he racks up. He's, he's this Big, long, switchable athlete at the four. Hollinger compared him pretty well to uh, Precious Achua, who went right before Tyrese Maxey with the 20th pick in the uh, in the draft. He's another athletic, switchable type of guy. I got to say, though, in terms of names, like going from Precious to Paul Reed, like one of the more unique names to one of the more generic names. So Precious definitely has that in his uh his, his arsenal. I forgot Precious's brother's named uh, God's Gift as well. Yeah. I remember that was kind of a big deal. Uh, well, this was, a, this was a great draft for names because the first two Cassiuses in NBA history were drafted right after each other in uh, Winston and Stanley in the 54th and 53rd pick. I'm happy that excites you. The uh, it, it does. It really does. You love looking at the, uh, at the basketball reference database to see how many uh, people have been named. That I don't think there have been many preciouses in the NBA. I could be wrong. You know, maybe there was a guy playing for the the St. Louis Hawks in the uh, in the fifties. I don't know, but uh, yeah, certainly a, a switchable player. And Daryl did make the point that with Horford gone, it makes a little more sense to draft somebody like this now as as a developmental piece. And you know, I, I wouldn't expect him to play right away. Although he is a little bit older, so maybe he does blossom a little bit quicker than somebody like Isaiah Joe or Tyrese Maxey. But it does make more sense to get a versatile backup four slash five type of player. But again, I have not watched him play all that much. I, I obviously trust what Hollinger says, but uh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to digging into the uh, the DePaul film and, uh, and trying to figure out what this guy can do. Yeah, I mean, look, he is, um, you know, just under six... Six six nine six ten in shoes, seven two wingspan, nine foot two standing reach, really good tools in that regard. Not a, he's a slender frame, um, but he has sort of like that length and athleticism where he can he can cover ground. And like you mentioned, 
15.1 points, 10.7 rebounds, uh, 1.9 steals, and 2.6 block shots per game. For DePaul, uh, incredible on-off numbers to back that up. So he has sort of like, you know, John Hollinger wrote he can cover one through four, maybe one through five if he adds weight. Over time, he has that kind of versatility. I think a lot of people look at him and maybe his man-to-man defense isn't quite at the level that you would expect looking at those numbers. He can sort of, I think, get lost at times off the ball, but he has the athleticism and the length and the mobility to eat eat up that space and make plays. So it's can you take sort of like this physical package, make him a little bit more disciplined, and really have one of the more unique defenders. And that's sort of the bet the Sixers are making. Offensively, it seems like he is a pretty decent mid-range shooter. Uh, He shot 77% from the line the previous year, 74% this year. That opens up a little bit of a face-up game for him. Other than that, not exactly a huge offensive threat, and you really want to see whether or not he can extend that out to the three-point line. Didn't really do that in college. Only made 16 three-pointers, but it looks like that might be some potential. And look, if he just does that, if he adds a little bit of weight, becomes a little bit more disciplined defensively, and can extend that shot out to the three-point line, like he has a chance of sticking uh, in the NBA, given that size and that defensive versatility. I love, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Jaden McDaniels a few pods back, and then I sort of went back and I watched a little bit more, and he was really undisciplined, uh, and to the point where I questioned some of that defensive versatility and upside, unless he completely changed his sort of outlook. But those sort of guys, I... I, look, Jaden McDaniels types would get me fired as a GM because I just, I love players of that archetype. And, uh, you know, Paul Reed is sort of similar in that vein with way less risk. And if he works out, if he figures it out, that's great. If not, it's a 58 pick in the draft. They very rarely work out anyway. That's the Mitrovich slot. The good, right. the good data slot. Now it's Paul or Reed. The other, the other way to look at it is it's only four back from Shake Milton. So maybe there is some pressure. I don't know. Uh, but that I, I think it's a reasonable gamble. And I think Sam Vecini had him going in the early 40s in his, I forget if it was his big board. It was, or his, it was his big board. I believe he had him 41st overall. So you had, you had Hollinger who was like, I think he had him like certainly top 20. 12th. Yeah. And then you had Vecini who had him like 40th. Sixers get him at, at, at 58. Um, I think there is something to be uh, intrigued by. And I guess that's what I would say. Just be intrigued, not expectations. Yeah. All right. That's about it, right? Yeah, I think that's about it. I'm, I'm running, like I said, on my fifth cup of coffee this morning. It's probably not healthy. So let's cut this off um, while I am still semi-coherent. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on. We'll do another one of these soon because we have this compressed, crazy schedule. But uh, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, man. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.